Motherfuckers, hodo, what up, yodo, our mission is noble, yeah, wanna be a mogul, my tindy's going global, build an empire, Constantinople, you mean Istanbul? Get icy like Froyo, all gotta stay vocal, Bitcoin, Ethereum, hodo, AMC, GameStop, YOLO, the hedgie short squeeze with ease, but they say no pump and dumps, please, what? <laughs> folks welcome welcome to another left reckoning i'm matt like with me as always david griscom hello david hey brother and uh, that was uh heather morgan aka RazzleCon. more on her uh, later in the evening uh she is a uh, party to the uh, largest financial seizure ever <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> pretty incredible doj history <laughs> Uh, put numbers on the boards, Razzlecon. Um, but uh, first, we have a very, very uh, exciting show uh, for you tonight. Um, we have Mike Preisner of the Empire Files, anti-war activist, uh, Iraq War veteran. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of uh, pertinent topics, uh, mm-hmm. I would say. We're going to get his uh, uh, understanding of the Ukraine situation with Russia and the historical a uh, split that can occur in the anti-war factions between liberal and anti-imperialist segments. And also we'll get a little bit of the libertarian anti-war uh, uh, flavor with uh, Rand Paul uh, heinous <laughs> position on the um, freezing the assets of Afghanistan. Um, and we have another uh, candidate uh, uh, interview, Andrew Hen, uh, that David conducted. And uh, we also are talking a little bit about false consciousness. Yeah. No, I mean, and uh, that Andrew Harrison, uh, definitely stick around for that interview. Um, he's running for justice of the peace here in Austin um, on a very, very interesting, radical, humane campaign to bring power back to work people. I really enjoyed talking to him um, about what his campaign, but also how he's sticking it, how it fits into this larger project that we're all invo- involved in, which is building, uh, you know, the power of our, the socialist movement and the working class uh, movement as well. So definitely, um, Checked out his campaign. Uh, we put a link to his uh, his campaign website below and stick around for that interview as well. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and then you know, I think in between that we might talk a little bit about this big theft because um, the uh, the Bitcoin people make it a little bit too easy. I mean, they're they made some content, and that content is king when you uh, have a side you know project as a rap. So influencer and our young CEO. And not only that, a, a, a prolific contributor to Forbes women. Um, uh, it's, you know, That's amazing. And, and then you put up 4.7 or $4.5 billion in stolen crypto, uh, bitcoins uh, that now that wasn't that much when they stole it. Uh, and I also, I need to say the DOJ isn't saying that they stole it. It's inf- I think everyone's inferring that, but the, the allegation is that they're trying to launder it through like you know Walmart gift cards and other sorts of Bitcoin platforms. Just, yeah. uh, but it is a fun story. We got some fun video of that uh, um, Razzlecon. Yeah, yeah. No, we get into it, and I'll just say at the top, you know, like we don't try to focus too much on the the Bitcoin stuff, um, just because it's like it's very fun and, and funny. But we try to make this also a little bit of a nutritious show for folks. But you know, I really. Um, 
I really uh, agree with our friend uh, Edward Angueso, um, you know, from this machine kills podcast and vice that like, you know, this stuff actually really does start to matter because the people who are now starting to put large amounts of sums that they really can't afford into this stuff are, you know, marginalized folks, working class people who are seeing all of these billboards and signs are telling them invest, 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 invest in Bitcoin. It's a sure thing. Um, and I think that this is where, you know, it starts to transform actually from us just sort of like roasting, you know, some really, uh, you know, goofy folks. I just saying like, you know, we need to be looking out for people who are being taken advantage of right now because it's uh, yeah. it's not going away. I mean, and it's a perfect example of what we're talking about. We have a bunch of basically stranded assets, uh, dirty money, uh, and it needs to find ways out. And of, like we said that with, you know, that's what crypto was originally for with buying drugs. So you, you have all this sort of cultural foam and mm-hmm. just nonsense that, that basically tries to help like people like these idiots <laughs> launder money. <laughs> um, it's, but uh, you know what? They gave us some music, so. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, before we get to our guests and everything, I, I did want to start this uh, show with a commentary about something um, that very much affects the left and Marxists. Um, there are kind of like liberal countercultural aspects of this phenomenon, uh, but I think it's something that's very much worth addressing as we're in this moment of rebuilding and reimagining what we need to be doing in the future. Um, you know, y'all might know the line. It's a pretty roaring and thunderous one. Um, at the end of the Communist Manifesto, right? Workers of the world unite. You've got nothing to lose but your chains. You know, and that can, you know, build up the spirit, make your cheeks a little bit red, get you excited. But the question, when you read that in 2022, it has to be asked. It's been since 1848, since that that moment when this was written. And we're still waiting. Despite capitalism expanding and proletarianizing billions across the globe, it can sometimes feel like Marx and Engels were much closer in a way to a global workers' revolution than some of us living today, right? That system, the system of capitalism, of the dictatorship of the bosses and the rich, um, has become more powerful. Um, but it's And it's also become very much implanted in our daily lives and our common sense. I mean, most people don't recognize um, that this is not the natural order. This is something that we have, as human beings have created, um, you know, and, and, and capitalism has certainly subsumed so many other traditions, uh, both culturally and spiritually. You know, one example is look at the churches in America. It's not like the churches have been sort of um, immune from getting caught up and in, in making money and, and scams and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. But look at the, you know, the traditional, for example, like Southern Baptist Church here. I mean, it feels very, very much um, like like a business in, in, in the fullest sense. Right. It's just amazing to see a tradition that's as old as that thousands of years old, you know, become so incorporated um, into, into a capitalist uh, system. I mean, right? Look at the Falwells, right? The Righteous Gemstone uh, um, inspirees. No, I mean, no doubt about it, right? Like, this is what I'm saying. It's like, this is an old tradition. This is thousands of years old. And it just has become incorporated into capitalism in such a way that it may, might seem to some of us like it's always been this way. And that's not been the case, right? So in spite of all of this historic weight lining up um, to show that there's these problems with these systems, we're just not there yet when it comes to the radical movements to, to, to you know, to overcome it. Um and this is a very this is why this is a question that any serious political thinker has to wrestle with, right? Despite all of the crimes and alienation and misery that you can see as a part of this system, why have we not been able to overcome it, right? Uh, the fact is is that a socialist revolution is not just going to happen mechanically, automatically. 
that means that we actually have to build the conditions ourselves for change. Um, and I think that that is one thing that we understand a lot more today than maybe folks did a couple hundred years ago that like, it's not just going to happen because things are going to get worse, right? We actually have to understand that we must play an active role in this movement. Um, I preface this just to take people through like, you know, the most zoomed out lens version of why there is this kind of crisis in socialist and, and Marxist thought, right? You feel like we've pointed out the contradictions. Things have only gotten worse since, for example, the Communist Manifesto was written, um, and we still have not seen a collective, um, you know, we've seen pockets of, of resistance and socialist revolutions for sure, but it hasn't been this kind of global world revolution that people were hoping for at that time. Um, you know, so in the shift in hope, right, when people, particularly in the 1950s in the West, um, you know, started to feel like this revolution is not around the corner. Um, in fact, that maybe it's a revolution that was denied, a revolution that was denied to us, Um Many did, and, and we still are in this era. They, they did what we call the cultural term, right? Um, the fight became not just about being against capitalism in general, um, organizing people into mass movements to challenge the system and planning yourself into the labor movement. Um, intellectually, at least, it became about developing a critique of contemporary society and culture in the hope that this could you know, unlock a key uh, to the answer, right? Why the revolution hasn't um, happened yet. And I don't want to say, um, that investiga investigating mass culture and ideology, um, you know, is unimportant, unimportant. It absolutely is. You know, we do that on this show as well. But I want to note one specific consequence of that, that um, I think is very pervasive, not just amongst the Marxists and socialists, it's across the board, particularly with liberals. Um, but I wanted to point it out and show why it's a problem and sort of work our way out of it, if we could at this time. Because um, I think it really is this kind of overcorrection uh, that we had um, in turning towards culture and, and a critique of ideology in general, right? Um, and the second bit, like, you know, this development um, and this kind of overall reliance um, in this kind of extremely condescending and unhelpful way that think people think about the term called false consciousness. And I'll break down the history of that really quick, but just to give people kind of common sense understanding of what I mean by that, it's the kind of thought that a lot of, especially when you when you're younger and you start just to become a socialist, right? Like you've had this realization about the system and you think that the thing that's sort of standing in between us and like mass socialist revolution is just that like your coworkers are just so brainwashed um, by society. They don't understand the problems. Um, you know, they don't, and we need to like, we need to wake people up, right? That's a very, very problematic um, place to be um, both like personally and politically. And, and I'll, I'll break down <laughs> why, but that's essentially what I mean. Um, by this kind of false consciousness discourse that a lot of people have is like, well, people don't know what's good for them. So we're going to tell them uh, what they need to to think and, and do. Right. And let me break this down for y'all. Right. Because if there's false consciousness, then there has to be a correct consciousness. And the correct consciousness is what we would call class consciousness. Um, and, and what is class consciousness? I think there's a couple of things that are a couple of things that are very, very important to note. Um, class consciousness is not something that is necessarily innate. It is a possibility, but it is a process. It is something that we construct, right? Class consciousness is understanding your position as a member of a class, the working class, um, 
and having that understanding sort of govern your politics and and your action, right? Um, but if you think about this as just an individual level problem, um, you know, you'd be making a mistake because this is a class issue, right? The working class has the potential to be cognizant of themselves, to understand themselves as a class. And because of our radical nature, because of our position in the system as the people who basically produce it, make the system work for everyone else, um, but also do not get the benefits in the same way that the ruling class does. We have the potential to challenge a system, um, to eradicate it, to do something different. That's why the working class is the revolutionary class. And to be able to do that, we have to build what is called class consciousness, understanding yourself as not just an individual or a Texan or North Dakotan or American or whatever different identity that you have. Um, understanding yourself first and foremost as, as a worker and a member of, of the working class, right? Because remember, class is not the only identity. Right. And it won't be the only identity. Um, it's not the only community that you belong to, but it has the potential to focus our attention and to organize us as a movement, as a class to the fundamental causes of our maladies and of our existence, which are the dictatorship of the rich capitalism. False consciousness is a term um, that maybe some of you aren't familiar with. Some of you are familiar with. Um, while Marx did lay the groundwork for this, particularly in volume one of Capital, um, the term doesn't show up in Marx's work. It shows up in Engels' work. And that doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate term. Um, I'm just taking people through the, the history here. And Engels throws that term out in a letter to Franz uh, Mehring. Um, it's a prototype that you can find in Marx's writing on ideology. Essentially, ideology is the system that comes out of um, you know, ideology is a, is, is what makes the world make sense to us, right? Ideology is produced by the conditions on the ground, not solely, but the large, like the, the largest force in there are the kind of economic, uh, conditions. And that's where you get this kind of common sense understanding of the way the world works. That's how you get the naturalization of capitalism and, um, you know, and, and the relations that we have, right? Where we obscure the relationship um, that we have between people into relationships between things, right? And, you know, that's ideology. And we can spend a lot of time talking about ideology. I don't want to get too focused on it because I want to focus on, on this false consciousness aspect of it, right? What is ideology for working people? And this is what the false consciousness is, is this kind of inversion that happens, right? This kind of common understanding of, of the society that we're in. Um, instead of seeing yourself as member, members of a community or of a class, you start to think of yourself as individuals. Um, and when this ideology becomes really strong, you know, we start to develop this ideology around individualism, personal responsibility, frankly, kind of anti-solidarity stuff. Think about a term like or phrase like God's help. God helps those who help themselves, right? That's a very, very strong expression of a highly ideological statement. But I want to note two things, right? Um, one, that is certainly false consciousness, right? So being able to recognize that and to address it um, is absolutely something that we need to be building the capacity to do. Um, but also understand that in the absence of radical movements in the absence of union power, labor power, community, all these kind of organizations. Is it absurd that people create ways of thinking and advice that they give themselves and each other that are hyper individualistic, right? In the absence of collective action, in the act of, in the absence of these kind of more communal movements, is it surprising that people have sort of created entire ideologies around the individual and how that's the only thing that's going to protect you, right? It's wrong. 
but we need to be able to understand where these things come from if we want to get out of this uh, out of this crisis, right? Because I want to talk about this a bit because I need to clear up some of the confusion around it. Ideology is is a necessary thing in the sense that it helps us understand the world around us. Um, it should not be surprising that an ideology has been developed to excuse the inexcusable, to justify the unjustifiable. Um, but for many, many Marxists, um, you know, the focus on ideology has become an impediment, right? To think that the reason that we are in crisis, the reason that we are not in power, the reason that the workers haven't risen up is just solely and purely ideological um, is a mistake because that means that all we need to do is defeat the popular ideology through argument, reason, maybe media or art, right, or a big spectacle, um, and that we would be in a revolutionary time. That's a huge mistake. That might work on a couple folks, but that is not the reason that we are in the moment, right? I don't want to be overly like deterministic about these things. Dealing with ideology and mass culture and these things does matter, but I think a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking it's the only thing that matters, right? It clearly blinds us uh, when we're trying to answer the question, why does the working class not stand this kind of like over commitment, this over um, analysis of ideology blinds us when we're trying to answer the question, why does the working class not stand overwhelmingly with us in a radical revolutionary way? We have to move past this, right? The first problem with the false consciousness stuff is it's extremely condescending to say, you don't know what you want. Me and my buddies do. We've been reading, uh, you know, journals together and, uh, you know, we, we figured out your problems for you, right? That's extremely condescending. The second major problem is that this blinds socialists from understanding what is actually happening within our class and how we can move forward, right? The kind of liberal formulation of this is why does the working class vote against their interests, right? Um, the question we should be asking ourselves is why is the interest of the working class expressing itself in the ways that it currently is, right? You know, most notably, you know, on this kind of working class interest thing is people think about Thomas Frank, right? Who wrote the famous book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, and he notes to his credit um, that more than anything, the blame should not be placed on voters, but on the Democratic Party, who gladly turn their backs on the working class in the state when they stop running on economic issues, health care and redistribution. But we got to go much further um, than our, our progressive friends here, right? Um, is, is we have to work to understand what happens when people are faced with a seemingly pro-worker option, why workers don't choose it. Because two times now, for example, talking about Bernie Sanders, and yeah, it was close and it was rigged, et cetera. But Bernie Sanders was running on those things and he didn't win, right? We can break down all the reasons why, but that was, it was there. Um, class consciousness is a process. It's building. It's not just our understanding. We have to be able to build the capacity to act, right? Because winning power particularly in the state, is just the beginning of, of the revolution. Like, what did Bernie say? Bernie was always saying, you know, if I come into power, we're going to need big mass movements to get any of the things I want to get, um, you know, in, in place. That's the correct analysis, but we were not there. And we weren't building that, frankly, right. well enough, right? Think of another example. In Alabama, in Bessemer, Amazon rigged the election and they cheated. But you know what people said after the fact? They said, we were afraid if we voted to join the union, we would lose our benefits, we would lose our insurance. And that could be, that's 100%, um, you know, it's, it's correct to say like, well, no, the union will fight for you. The union would do all these things, but you know what? People didn't believe that you had the capacity to do it, right? You have to understand that people have these kind of analysis that they have, right? In the sense that like, there's a short term, my job sucks, blah, blah, blah. But I know if I don't make a big sting, I can keep it and keep these certain things that I have. 
versus the long-term kind of more radical um, position, which is like, well, we have to fight now to ensure like a better future. What our job as socialists is to do is to build up the capacity to people um, so that we can convince working people in our communities, at our shops and things like that, that when we fight, we win, right? And until we build, change the material conditions, getting very focused on the kind of ideological, oh, we need to convince this person of this, this and that can be a huge, huge mistake. Um, I want to get to our, our, our guest here. So I just, I'll just close with this. Socialists are an active body in the working class, right? That means that like these are pe- people who are socialists are committed. Socialists and communists are committed to doing extra work. They're committed very, very much to this movement. Um, and that means that we have to do the work of not just convincing people, for example, that, uh, you know, your boss is abusing you, that, you know, universal health care would be better for you, um, you know, that being in a union is how you express your power, both individually and collectively, but also building the capacity to make those things a reality. You know, that means things like strike funds. That's when you say to somebody, you should join a union, you need to be able to provide for them so that if the boss comes with the full strength that the bo- of power that the bosses have, we can look out for each other, right? And union drives political campaigns and building organizations that can begin to direct and organize our power toward victory, right? We have to have this extra commitment to this as socialists to keep the flame alive in dark times when we're disorganized and fragmented as a movement. Um, and for that reason, and that reason alone, we need to be able to understand what our task is. It's not to like awaken, you know, some kind of stupefied masses that doesn't understand what's happening. We need to not just be able to articulate our vision, but we have to start showing through mass movement and organization that we can win immediate victories and then win the world, right? Um, and it's it's really understanding that, you know, it's not that people don't want things or think that their boss is an asshole or think that the power structures of the society um, aren't working in their favor. People do not believe um, that, that, that we have the plan or the capability to follow through on the things that we're promising. And until we start to really focus on that, we'll never get out of this quagmire, right? And that's why focusing so much, for example, on these kind of false consciousness or ideological things can be a huge impediment, um, especially when it's, if it's preventing people from doing the actual on the ground kind of material analysis as to why um, you know, we are not in power today, right? And that's my two cents to start off. There you go. Well, the, there's a reason uh, Benjamin Franklin sort of like waste not, want not uh, <laughs> got popular, right? Because that stuff is empowering because if you're wanting, you don't waste stuff and uh, mm-hmm. you have to figure out something that's more empowering than that. Well, let's get to our guest now. Uh, see him in the waiting room. Uh, he is an anti-war activist, Iraq war veteran, a producer at the Empire Files, which I can speak for David. Uh, we endorse uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, Mike Preisner, Mike, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be on. All right, and I'm just gonna let's see if we can get your mic a little bit louder. Uh, yeah, um, sure. I don't want to take a let's see, <laughs> a little bit quiet. Yeah, Is that cool. Um, I can turn my gain up. Yeah, let's get some more gain if we can. Oh, there yeah, we go. Yeah, it's a lot better. Cool. Perfect. Sweet. All right. Yeah, so Mike, I saw this tweet um, that you posted uh, in the context of um, somebody dunking on Tim Pool and Vouch over um, some <laughs> sanctions stuff. And uh, I think this is a this is a really – I found it really instructive and interesting um, uh, uh, 
you know, way to think about this. So I wanted you to flesh this out for us. But you said this isn't just an online thing. In the Gulf War, the anti-war movement split between the anti-imperialist wing and a much larger liberal wing, which actually had mass marches under the slogan, sanctions, not war. U.S. sanctions then killed uh, about a multiple Iraqis, mostly baby, mostly babies. Now, in the context of what's going on in Ukraine, like, I, I want your understanding of that um, to the best, you know, it's we're this is at Wednesday evening, uh, February 9th, you know, things change. Uh, the most recent headlines I saw was, you know, Macron and Putin had talks and Macron said, you know, we want to lower the temperature on this stuff. But any uh, more up to date understanding you have on that. But also tell us about this ideological split in the anti-war movement and why it's significant. Yeah, well, I guess first, just the the Russia situation. I mean, like many potential conflicts, this is one of those where if right now the U.S. just did nothing at all, uh, nothing would happen. Russia is not planning to invade Ukraine Russia has been pretty clear about this. Their troop movements are pretty clear about it. And in particular, the Ukrainian government has been very clear about it, uh, specifically the Ukrainian defense ministry, which is saying this is not happening. Why is everyone talking about this in the U.S.? And it's been pretty funny to see all the U.S. bourgeois media, New York Times and others having to like run around and write all these op-eds to be like, no, actually, Ukraine is wrong. And we are right that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. So um, <laughs> Ukraine probably worried about World, them being the flashpoint for World War III. So they're very much trying to turn down the temperature as well. And, you know, this is really, um, this is really a long pattern. I mean, of course, the, the Cold War was a period where very much people thought that there was a chance of nuclear war and mutually assured destruction and bombs hitting American cities with nuclear warheads and bombs hitting Moscow with nuclear warheads. You know, it was a very scary time for people. And so out of that came an actual framework or architecture to resolve things diplomatically, to turn down temperature, to make sure that there wasn't an outbreak of nuclear war. And there was multiple, multiple treaties and guarantees that uh, both uh, Russia and the United States came to together. You know, one of those guarantees was the United States on multiple occasions promising NATO will not expand east. And now NATO has expanded pretty much all the way up to Russia, except for Ukraine. Uh, notably, uh, that being actually a common route since the times of Napoleon for invasions into Russia. Most notably, the Nazi invasion into the Soviet Union, which killed 27 million Soviets, 15 million of whom were Russian. And so I, like any country, you have some kind of security concerns mm -hmm. and some kinds of red lines about national defense and what you will and will not allow. But back to those treaties, all of those treaties that were set up as frameworks to make sure that things would not escalate to the way that they did during the Cold War, all of these treaties, the United States left them, all of them. And so mm -hmm. all of these things that were put in place that would guarantee that we wouldn't get to a place where World War III could start and it could be nuclear. Um, the big, the most significant one recently was in 2019, Trump tore up um, this intermediate range uh, missile treaty. And the reason that plays into the situation in Ukraine, which the U.S. media, of course, will never say, is now that that treaty is gone, and of course, the U.S. effort to bring Ukraine into NATO, which is just the U.S.-controlled alliance of junior imperialist partners to the U.S. war machine, um, that would mean that now that that treaty is gone, which is the very first step to the U.S. putting missiles in Ukraine that have a two-minute flight time to Moscow with nuclear warheads. And so I think that if any country put missiles with a two-minute flight time to Washington, D.C. on the Canadian border, there would be some kind of uh, escalated tensions there. Um, but uh, I think that the, the important thing is that 
this is completely a, a crisis of the U.S. is making. If the, Russia is not going to invade Ukraine, and that's that's the end of it. Um, but uh, I think that people should remain vigilant because wars don't always start because uh, leaders decide to start them. Um, wars, in particular, World War One, uh, they start just as like a series of escalating tensions, and they almost can start accidentally. So all of these things that Biden is doing, sending more troops to Europe, doing expanding B-52, which are which drops nuclear weapons, expanding uh, uh, flight areas of B-52 bombers, scrambling jets to Russian aircraft, doing aggressive naval operations. I mean, these are all things that could accidentally start a war um, just because of the U.S.'s own belligerence. And a war with Russia should concern people uh, because the United States and Russia are the two biggest nuclear armed powers in the world. And so it's uh, not a war that we want the reckless politicians in the United States starting just because, you know, I don't know why they kind of created this crisis, maybe to I don't know if you have thoughts on it, but maybe to distract a little bit from uh, how bad Biden is doing and his, you know, so they needed something there. But um, I guess to back to this issue of sanctions, I mean, as we've seen this war escalation and the real absurdity of, of thinking about, uh, you know, going to war with Russia, even if they sent troops into Ukraine, which is, you know, on their border, um, you know, you've heard uh, this renewed call for, you know, you don't have to go to war. You can use sanctions to uh, punish mm-hmm. a country instead. Um, and that was the reference to my tweet because, uh, I think it was being shared in the context of people like Tim pool. And I think it was, it came from a vouch, a stream saying that oh, we can just sanction. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we can sanction the hell out of them. Like we don't have to go to war with them. Uh, you know, that, that's not like a new idea. I mean, and, and so the, the history of the, uh, anti-war movement against the Gulf war is there was a huge upsurge against the, the 1990-91 war uh, against Iraq. Um, the U.S. hadn't really seen a big war in a very long time, really since Vietnam, where it was defeated. Um, and so there was, a, even in the military, I mean, there was some, there was thousands of deserters and conscientious objectors when the Gulf War started. People were just like, I'm out of here. Um, and even a couple mutinies, which are pretty interesting that we don't have time for. Um, but uh, the anti-war movement was huge. It was surging. It was in the streets. And there was this liberal wing that came into the leadership uh, that adopted this slogan, sanctions, not war. And it was so pervasive that I, I was at like six years old at the time. I remember writing a letter to President George H.W. Bush saying, don't go to war with Iraq. You can just stop sending them food instead. Because my mom, who was interested in the anti-war movement, that was the anti-war uh, mm-hmm. uh, literature that reached her. It's like, you know, there is, they weren't showing it on TV. There is no internet. But she was reached by liberal forces in the anti-war movement saying, this is the demand. We need everyone to write to the president and say, withhold food and medicine from Iraq uh, instead of going to war. And this was considered um, the liberal peace position. Um, But it actually caused a split in the movement where there were separate marches, where there was marches literally under the banner, sanctions, not war. And there was a, a... opposing demonstrations led by communists uh, that said no war in Iraq, which is mm-hmm. a much better, uh, a much better slogan. And I think that, of course, the, you know, people, when they think of sanctions, they think of like, we're sanctioning Putin and like, he can't like fly where he wants to fly or something yeah. like that. But sanctions by U.S. design are meant to just to hurt people. I mean, the whole strategy of sanctions, the entire reason that the U.S. sanctions any country, and we have a lot of examples Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, the entire point, North Korea, uh, the entire point is to make life so difficult for regular people 
that they just put so much political pressure on the government that that's the political leverage that the U.S. have. And so by design, they hurt innocent people, civilians, in particular, the most vulnerable people, older people, babies and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's unfortunate with the Russia thing that we see the regurgitation of very old uh, debunked ideas. I mean, in the case of Iraq, as the tweet said, the results of the U.S. sanctions were genocidal. And there's really no other way to put it. And that would be the same case in Russia and everywhere else that it does them. And and I want to get back to talking a little bit more about the, the Ukraine-Russia stuff um, with you, because I'm really interested in your perspective there, because it has been sort of fascinating to watch, like, the way that it is being, like, the headlines around it versus the actual facts on the ground. But I, I just wanted to add to the sanctions bit, you know, um, it's honestly... <laughs> Uh, one of the most, and it's it's horrible because it's it's murderous and and genocidal. But like one of the most kind of liberal things, like well, we wrote these sanctions to be very specific, to touch this, 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 and that, right? Um, and oftentimes, one was presented is not actually what's on on the books. And two, you're basically saying we are creating a legal apparatus as one of the most powerful countries in the world, the the economic powerhouse of the world. That if you want to do business with the United States government without having us harass you or come at you, you know, you can't break any of these kind of rules. So we, you know, and up happening from companies or organizations that you know do trade or business with those with you know in iran or potentially a russia as they say oh we're not going to do business um there because we don't want to end up on the wrong side of the american um you know sanctions right i mean this is something that happens in in iran right now uh, when they're saying like oh well these things don't prevent you know met- certain kinds of medical equipment and things like that well, what ends up happening is people just walk away from the table because they don't want to deal do business with the run face punishment from the american government yeah, no, it asphyxiates the economy. I mean, it just and it it blocks essential things, medicine, food, you know, and, you know, like I've seen firsthand, like the effects of what these sanctions do, in particular in Venezuela, I mean, completely mm-hmm. crushed by sanctions. And if it wasn't for the kind of extremely heightened and mass political consciousness of working class people in that country, that the sanctions would have been successful. It's the same thing for Cuba. It's the same thing for Iran and Korea. It's like the sanctions are extremely effective and work unless you have developed a very strong and robust and active politically conscious uh, population. And so really like, uh, you know, like governments that don't involve the people, I can't really survive the impact of sanctions because, you know, they're going to become the target. And so that's, that's the only reason countries have been able uh, to survive against all odds and, you know, uh, barely surviving and a lot of people not surviving. But I think that, you know, another thing for people to understand about the the situation with, with Russia and Ukraine is that like, this is the, the U S doctrine is to uh, escalate war with Russia and with mm-hmm. China ever since the, um, disintegration of the Soviet Union, um, which, you know, collapsed itself. I mean, you know, Russia was the first country in the Soviet Union to leave the Soviet Union. And then the rest of it, of course, collapsed. Um, but ever since the, uh, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the United States said we can never allow a power as big as the Soviet Union ever again. Um, we can never allow a competitor like that ever again. And actually, in the U.S. national defense strategy doctrine, which anyone can read, uh, you know, it says, I actually can quote it, principal priority is to counter Russian and Russia and China as competitors. Um, and the way to do that is sustained investment in lethal force. And so when we hear the U.S., and in fact, the, the Pentagon specifically, say we need to make sure that Russia and China uh, are countered as competitors, they're talking about economic competitors. I mean, they're not talking about Russia is going to attack us unless we develop our military. 
China is never going to attack the U.S. Russia is never going to attack the U.S. It's just that's the kind of thing that generals in the Pentagon dream of doing. But no other country seriously wants to just start a random war with a big, powerful country and, and cause a disaster. Uh, the, the U.S. Has, has proven that that's a pretty bad path to take to develop your country. Um, and, and so the U.S. has in its doctrine to prevent Russia and China from being real economic competitors. So this is about he- uh, hegemony of U.S. capitalism, of U.S. banks, of U.S. businesses. And how do they want to counter the economic competition of Russia and China? Well, they say it plainly, the development of lethal force, meaning uh, continually investing and growing your capability to kill a lot of people and to say, okay, our leverage uh, to make sure that our businesses, our banks, our dollars are going to be going in places instead of China, instead of Russia. The contracts are going to be going to our companies instead of Russian Chinese companies. The leverage we have is to make killing machines that we can say, well, we'll just kill a lot of your people uh, if you don't you know, allow us access to this area. And that is just the encapsulation of U.S. policy towards every country everywhere in the world. It's just really nakedly about securing access to markets, resources, cash for U.S businessmen, uh, and then using the military and the weaponry of the military industrial complex as its, you know, tool with which to do that. I don't think most people would agree with doing that. You know, if American workers knew that that's actually how U.S. foreign policy runs, you know, you would say, you know, that's a bad use of our, you know, majority of our tax dollars. You know, and and, I mean... The, the irony, I guess the irony is the wrong word. The, the cruelty of it is that like the empire is never like satisfied, right? Because, you know, so the, the ideological enemy in the, in the Soviet Union is like destroyed. And then the American government has essentially a foreign policy of trying to rub their nose and shit. Um, afterwards, we prevent and we prevent democracy from being able to, you know, spring up in that country. We interfere in elections. We always talk about everyone's always talks about, you know, Trump and and Putin. But like the United States actively interfered in elections in Russia in a way. Um, and while propping up, you know, oligarchs and mass privatization in the country. And I'm sorry, like if you if you are anti Putin, for example, right, if you're an American you know, liberal who's very worked about Putin, I will tell you um, the, the number one goal you should have um, for Russia is. Um, when it comes to American policy toward Russia is for the United States to get as far away as possible because Putin only is able to exist in the kind of anti-democratic front that the American government has been, you know, a, a big part of. And on top of that, I, I want to say about what I was saying about the empire never being satisfied. You know, one of the things that is so terrible about the, the current situation is that, you know, Putin is certainly sitting on top of the state and he has, you know, people who are extremely wealthy and own a lot of the resources in that country. And what happens with the the benefits from those resources? They go to the American and the United Kingdom financial markets and the real estate market. What I'm saying is like there's already a funnel of resources out of that part of the world into the West. Um, and it's just is like if you ever think that you're going to be able to placate empire, just look at how the Americans and, and the United Kingdom have dealt with with Russia post-Soviet Union. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point, too, because like with, with it's easy to see with China, like why the you like the capitalist United States, we have to confront China because it's run by communists and they are mm-hmm. uh, operating a foreign policy with uh, a communist ideology and cooperation, all of these things. And it's just it's this like it was in the after World War Two, where you had the socialist camp and the capitalist camp and the world divided into these two uh, poles in the world. And you're with the communists or you were at the capitalist imperialist countries. Um, and and uh, so, of course, that explains 
uh, in, in addition to being a big economic competitor, U.S. hostility towards China. But Russia, you know, w- after the Soviet Union was overthrown, you know, the U.S., as you mentioned, was very involved in Yeltsin and the presidency and stuff like that. But Russia is a capitalist country now and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a pro-U.S. capitalist country, like culturally, like Russian culture, like idealizes the U.S., wants to be like the U.S. I mean, there's no like hatred of America like you might find in, in other countries. Uh, you know, so uh, it would seem like, well, why doesn't the U.S. just want to ally with Russia? It's a big capitalist country that is probably willing to work with the United States. The reason for it, it just gets back to this issue of U.S. hegemony. So if uh, why wouldn't Russia just become part of NATO then after the overthrow of the Soviet Union? The U.S. wants to gobble up all those other former Soviet republics and make them part of NATO. But why not Russia? Uh, and the reason is because the U.S. has to be the leader of NATO. If the U.S. let Russia into NATO, which would, you know, uh, stop any chance of a war between NATO and Russia, obviously, um, that would mean that Russia, a big a powerful and country with a really deep history uh, would probably have a lot of influence in NATO. Uh, mm-hmm. Other European countries in NATO might, uh, you know, align more with Russia. Countries like Germany, especially, which has long-standing historical and cultural relationships uh, with Russia, would probably gravitate more towards Russia as a, as a NATO country. Um, and so, it's it's not just about like the ideological battle of, of socialism versus capitalism. It's about the U.S. It, we want capitalist countries in our orbit, but we have to be the most powerful capitalist country. And if there's another capitalist country that might uh, step on our toes a little bit and us as the great eagle at the top and all of the other imperialist partners are under our wing, um, you know, we, we can't can't accept that. So it just it exposes that the U.S. is just about its own domination or its domination of its ruling class. And I, I think that that's a really important point in, in the sense that like one thing that I mean, this is just me being having some self-reflection. I've been a little sad seeing even some of like the kind of like left slash socialist reaction to the the, the crisis. Right. Um, and I don't know, just I, I think the the vast majority of people who are principled socialists on this, I think, have had the right take. But I have seen, you know, this kind of like, you know, sanctions or, um, you know, pro sanction movements or people saying, well, this time is different, right? This is like Putin is like the real threat to democracy. And I guess for me as a member of the left, that has made me sad. But I want to make the, the larger point. Um, that what what you're see- I've just been trying to remind people it's like you know this is one of the good American socialist traditions like World War One as it was like the great communist tradition right was opposing the imperialist war and remember that there will always be a story right it's the Kaiser right <laughs> like there's always like some kind of threat that can that can be you know sort of um, you know pumped out um, through the media and I think when you look at Ukraine. Um, and, and Russia, I think one of the best examples of this is one to look at other countries' media, um, and two, look at the way that it's been sort of talked about in American press in the sense that like this is a ticking time bomb. Um, when what's, when, okay, there's been some mobilization by, you know, by Russia on the border, right? But nowhere near nowhere near the kind of logistical capacity for any kind of like land invasion, right? So when people are sitting here like, there's a picture that's being presented to the American public, right? That there are guys standing there and they're putting the barbed wire on the border and they're ready to charge over it. Like there is no real logistical capacity for doing any of that. And once you start to see that like, oh, well, this is being hyped up, then you really need to start challenging and questioning this narrative as to why, um, you know, this story is sort of being promoted to all of us that we are, you know, five minutes to midnight of a full on Russian land invasion of, of Ukraine. 
Yeah. I mean, and you know what you mentioned about how the people are just so uh, inundated with this fear about Putin. And, you know, like it's it makes sense if you meet people who are like, yeah, I don't hate that guy. We should do something about him. I mean, this was, you know, back to that example of the Gulf War. I mean, this played out in a big way in the invasion of Iraq in 2003 also, where it was um, any anti-war voice that got on the mainstream media because there were mass anti-war mm-hmm. protests at the time. Um, the first question that they would be asked would be, well, what do you think about Saddam Hussein? Don't you agree mm-hmm. that he's a madman? Don't you agree that he's evil? And if, if you agree with that, then what do you think needs something has to be done about him? So if you're not for war, what are you for? Uh, what do you think should be done about him? Um, and this, this again, cleaved the anti-war struggle into a liberal and anti-imperialist wings. I mean, uh, anti-imperialist leaders uh, who would go on the news would say, I'm not answering that question. You're trying to trap me into a question to legitimize the war propaganda. Whereas the the liberal wing would say, yes, of course, uh, this mm-hmm. is horrible. Something's got to be done. But war is not the answer, uh, you know, uh, type of thing. And and there was a split in the anti-war movement in 2003 also, um, and a pretty major one. And of course, the, the bigger wing, uh, although both wings were pretty massive, um, bigger wing was led by, you know, Democrats, liberal organizations and so forth. And uh, the, that split was over slightly different things, um, but it, it came down to that kind of core uh, that core idea. And so it's it's a tried and true tactics. That's why the U.S. keeps uh, using them, uh, the boogeyman and everything. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, maybe something that more be relatable to people is, do you really want Biden uh, the making decisions on whether or not we're going to go into World War III and then being uh, in charge of World War III, it would seem. Uh, I think most people would think that's a bad move, no matter who's on the other side. Also, I, I mean, I would just say, from from this is anecdotal, this is my personal experience, but like I have a hard time seeing most Americans, particularly working class Americans, like actually wanting to see any kind of you know American troops going to die and and, and to fight o- over Ukraine, right? I'm not even making any kind of larger statements other than like I don't think there actually is that much um, popular support amongst like the people. So like there has to be this kind of narrative, um, you know, that's being promoted. Because I mean, like liberals have been really you know pushing a kind of you know. Russian phobic like narrative for a long Mm -hmm. time, but like, and they're very worked up and they, you know, they're, uh, but again, like, I don't think that this is like really trickling down to the vast majority of people, which is why the ticking time bomb, like this kind of the way that this is being sort of pushed on people right now does make me more worried because it's like, okay, there wasn't, um, there's like, there's certainly a, a political agenda from like the U.S., military from like an imperial perspective of like wanting to protect our hegemony. Then there's a kind of like Russia, Russia fixation that has become very popular mm-hmm. people, in the media and a lot of American uh, liberals. So then how can you sort of excuse, um, um, you know, to an American people who I think are just tired of, of war and conflict across the board. Um, you know, and the, and the only way to really do that is to try to bring up these old, it's, you know, as I was saying, five minutes to midnight, it's Hitler invading Poland mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and I, I hope that we're able to, to push and, and, and help people see through that. I have to say, I, I think that, um, I, you know, I don't want to talk too early, obviously, but I do think that like on a popular level, on, on, the, on a national level, I don't find there to be as, as much hunger as I think people in power would sort of like. And I also have to say just on top of that as an internationalist, like it has also been really encouraging to see just the like – the boredom that a lot of uh, even European countries sort of have with the idea of a, of a hot war. The Germans, of all people, um, I don't know if people were seeing, but there have been really hilarious, like kind of public polling around this, where like pretty much every country is like, well, maybe the EU, um, you know, 
or NATO should do something like 50% of the population saying that, but literally every time they said, should my country do anything? It's like 20%, you know, uh, polling that they think they should do something. So I'm encouraged at least that doesn't mean that, you know, popular support is it uh, what decides if we go to war or not, but I will say at least there is that kind of uh, (laughs) consciousness. Well, I mean, everyone has in very recent memory, the U S occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I don't think any, uh, anyone wants that fate. And so, you know, that's uh, one thing that came out of that was like the example of how actually catastrophic those decisions are. Yeah, I mean, kind of related to that, there's, a, and then we'll move on to Afghanistan, but there's that <clears throat> skier who has dual Chinese American citizenship, and everyone is freaking out because she's um, performing for China. And it's like, like, and she's not saying nothing about their human rights records. Like, as if we didn't do the Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan just in the past, like, since I've been right. alive. Like, what are we talking? Like, it, it, like it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, like, are U.S. Olympians expected to, like, speak out about U.S. human rights crimes at the Olympics? I mean, I wish they would, but uh, it's definitely yeah, not an expectation. I, but also, like, that whole hysteria is funny because, like, I definitely remember like past Olympics watching and like there's tons of Americans that compete on European teams, like white Americans that are like born in Switzerland, but grew up in the U S and then compete on the Swiss team or whatever. Like, it seems like it's not an abnormal thing for people to like go from where they, they can't get on the Olympic team and where they're living and they go to their home country or whatever. Um, not the case of this person. She could got on any Olympic team she wanted, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very common, but yeah, I mean, it shows the, I mean, it's, it's relevant to this discussion because it's, it's all of the like programming and propaganda that's necessary to prep people for a war. And as I mentioned that in the U.S. national security doctrine, it's Russia and China and all everything needs to be focused on confronting them and building up our weaponry and, and, and prepping the population for these are our enemies. And we need to do whatever possible to make sure that they don't become big powers. And so that mm-hmm. that bleeds into every element of culture, you know, even the Olympics, sadly. Yeah. And likewise, when Ned Price said, you know, we have this information and it's the it's our intelligence partners and we can't tell you. But it's like, I mean, I'm, I haven't been around for that long. <laughs> like even I have the pattern recognition for this. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move to uh, talk about another uh, sector of the anti-war, um, uh, the sort of right side, libertarian side. So I do want to credit Josh Hawley saying some agreeable things about NATO uh, recently. I'm a little bit suspicious that if. Um, uh, Taiwanese membership in NATO was on the table that he would maybe change his mind on that. Um, but I want to play this Rand Paul clip from earlier in the day because uh, Afghanistan is um, in a lot of trouble because we have freezed its accounts, basically financial warfare continuing where we've withdrawn. And uh, Rand Paul was asked by Ryan Grimm on Rising about you know if we should stop that. And uh, this response was, uh, is, and to tie back to our sanctions discussion, I think pretty uh, grotesque. And, and one and, one real yeah. quick question on on Afghanistan. Uh, you you've said you don't want the Biden administration offering more aid to Afghanistan, but at the same time, the administration is holding on to seven billion dollars in in assets that belong to the Afghan government, not releasing them back to the cent- central bank as they as they were before. Uh, do you think that the Biden administration ought to continue holding on to the Afghan assets, or ought to release it back to the Afghan government? It's probably hard for me to imagine that something we're holding is actually an Afghan asset. We were giving them $50 billion a year. I would think the $7 billion is stuff they owe us. But it also wasn't, it's for a government, this is a government that took over in a military junta. It's not a legitimate elected government. No way in the world would I give them that money. 
And the thing is, is we've spent billions and billions, if not trillions there. And uh, I think it's a big mistake. And to reward people, look, that as much as I was for leaving the Taliban agreement, they broke every bit of the agreement. They said they wouldn't advance and they wouldn't take cities until we had gone. And they did anyway. So I think they've broken every agreement we had. And uh, I would uh, put that money back in the Treasury. We don't have it to give anyway. I mean, it's, you know, the thing is, is all it is is more borrowed money. So I, I wouldn't give it to them. God, I'm sorry. The music at the end is so dystopian. I must say. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, what's your assessment of Biden? And again, that is Rand Paul agreeing with Joe Biden's policy of freezing those assets. Uh, tell us your reaction to what's going on in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, well, it reminds me of like Trump being like, you know, we why why don't we take Iraq's oil? Like that's our mm-hmm. oil. Like we we took over the country, it should be ours. So, so like the the arrogance of like, you know, that's our money. Um, that people across Afghanistan in a mass degree are suffering acute malnutrition. Um, and Human Rights Watch just uh, a, about a week ago released a report saying they're on the brink of a famine, a nationwide famine. That is the impact of uh, the United States seizing billions of dollars of assets from Afghan banks. Of course, all the money that was looted by the U.S. puppets as they fled the country, that was a lot of money too. Uh, The United States and the World Bank have imposed really severe sanctions on Afghanistan in addition to freezing all its assets and looting all its assets. Um, And and of course, that's hurting Afghanistan already like one of the poorest countries on earth. Of course, that's hurting everyone's social services are collapsing. Uh, everything is collapsing in the country because of the economic warfare of the United States. Um, you know, Rand Paul, this whole like, it's not a legitimate government. They took power in a hoodie. It's like this was a negotiated surrender. The United States negotiated their own surrender. Uh, and the Taliban actually, you know, protected them on their way out. This whole, oh, they didn't come into cities. They said they wouldn't come into cities until we were gone. Uh, if the Taliban didn't come into Kabul, before the U.S. was gone, there would have been a lot more attacks like the one we saw that was the deadliest attack of the entire Afghan war for U.S. forces. Um, And it was Taliban doing security, covering the retreat uh, of the United States. Um, But, you know, I will say that, um, you know, it's funny because Rand Paul, too, he's the one that throughout the entire when Trump was elected was like, finally, we have an anti-war president. That was Rand Paul's line and like bringing the libertarian world into Trumpdom by saying he's the first anti-war president we've ever had. Obviously, a load of BS seeing what uh, Trump did. But I will um, I think that Biden's approach to Afghanistan, while it's genocidal, the sanctions regime and the the freezing of assets, which just should immediately be released. I mean, like if if you don't want to hurt innocent people, release the assets. Uh, But they do want to hurt innocent people. Um, I think that the U.S. knew it needed to leave Afghanistan for a long time. One of the reasons that the defeat took so long is because. You know, what general, what president wants to take responsibility for a lost war? Um, It was pretty obvious for a very long time that there is no way for the U.S. to leave without a total Taliban takeover. Um, And so, you know, we Trump was possibly going to be the person that ended the Afghanistan. I mean, he was saying that he's going to do it. Lots of people were saying he was going to do it. But when it came down to it, he was probably like, do I really want to be the guy that had the big Afghanistan disaster happen on his watch? So he kicked it down the line to Biden. And I think that what the the Pentagon wanted to leave, I mean, it was a clear military defeat. They couldn't really sustain it. And they needed to do what 
Obama came in and did in 2008, which was we need to pivot to Asia. We're bogged down in these wars that we shouldn't be fighting. And the real focus is China. We need to pivot to China. And so the Pentagon very much is on that page, too. So much so that as soon as the withdrawal happened, it like all the training switched to war with China for people in, inside the military and in particular in the special forces. Um, so the Pentagon knew it needed to leave. Um, of course, it needed a partner to leave, really someone who is going to be willing to uh, be president when it all collapsed into a huge disaster that they knew was inevitable and knew was inevitable for uh, probably about 15 years of the war. So uh, for Biden, I mean, uh, I don't know how conscious he is of, about his decisions as a president. I mean, he doesn't seem that I, I feel like he was like the perfect person to come in and say, OK, you know, we can continue with the, the Pentagon's withdrawal plan. I mean, the fact that that plan for the U.S. exit was con- was constant through the Trump and Biden administrations. It wasn't the Trump plan. It wasn't the Biden plan. It was the Pentagon plan. They wanted that to happen. And, uh, you know, after so many administrations, Biden was just the one that uh, wasn't going to continue to kick the can down the line. I don't think that's because he's good in any way. Uh, Maybe didn't even know what was happening. Um, But, you know, it was uh, this is the same reason the Vietnam War dragged on for a long time. Mm. No one wanted to take responsibility. None of the generals wanted to say, this is lost. We got to get the fuck out of here. Uh, no president wanted to be like, we've lost and I'm going to surrender. Um, and so they just, the really the bulk of the Afghanistan war, after the troop surge uh, that, that Obama did, the U.S. has been retreating slowly since then for about 12 years, a 12 year long retreat, paving the way with uh, bodies and limbs of Afghan civilians um, and, of course, U.S. soldiers as well. And so uh, it was uh, definitely a... Uh, something that's going to haunt Biden for sure. Um, but I think that if there's anything he can do to make it right, it would be just stopping, continuing to wage war on the country, you know, through economic means. Yeah. I mean, there's such a cruelty with the, the U S holding money and and preventing essentially like, you know, international aid from coming into the country too. Um, of like, uh, I don't know, creating a scenario where you're like, well, see, you guys thought that the occupation was so bad. Look what happens when the Taliban is in power. And like, look, of course, like the Taliban, you know, extremely reactionary, you know, like it is a force, you know, to to oppose it if, if there ever is one. Um, but to deny aid to people, to human beings because of the government, because of the people who hold power over them, um, I think is one of the most inhumane things that you can do. If your actual goal is to sort of challenge those in power in that society. I mean, they've just suffered so much for the yeah. last 20 years. I mean, it's it's horrible. I mean, and and it's it, of, of course, the the violence has uh, drastically reduced, but the the suffering is is still catastrophic and it's because of the U S I mean, and mm-hmm. it's, um, that's our real legacy there. And this is the, the fact that it's continuing is really criminal and, you know, uh, warfare by a different means, unfortunately. So can I ask you, um, you know, just cause we're sort of talking about it both with the history of the anti-war movement in this country with that Rand Paul clip right there. Um, I mean, <laughs> how can we sort of, work through this, right? Because, you know, there's a part of me that's like, okay, we want to build coalitions that can, you know, challenge the empire, challenge this machine. Um, but you do see where like, you know, you might be against the war, but if we're coming at it for very different reasons, particularly if you're a libertarian, you're literally just worried about how much it's costing the U.S. Treasury, right? Very, very different perspectives here. I mean, you know, what is the answer here? I mean, um, you know, is it just that we need to be better at making our case, that we need to be bolstering our numbers in general? Um, you know, is there, does Rand Paul, for example, like represent, you know, a very 
embedded part of like the libertarian movement. I know, you know, like, you know, there, there's all of these different, um, you know, groups that sometimes show up to anti-war protests in, in my experience. Um, and, you know, when you're there, you're like, okay, well, this is great. We got people um, in the streets, but then obviously on the other side, in the political movements, we have to ask questions like, well, what do you really want on the other side? And you can see how quickly people who you're marching with one week are the next week, you know, doing the, in this pro sanctions march. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few different like components of that. I mean, there's like the, there's like the people in power who pose to be the, the anti-war Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson is the leader and then other Republican Congress people like Matt Gaetz, you know, they're all anti-war because they're denouncing the, the Russia stuff. They said we got to get out of Afghanistan, you know, and, and they use it. But uh, but they're all very pro-war with China. I mean, that's also actually mm-hmm. their whole rationale for why we should de-escalate with Russia so we can escalate with China. And so those people in no way are potential allies at all. Like if you're just saying, let's not go to war here, let's go to war there, um, or let's increase sanctions. You know, like that's, that's not, you know, that's not serious, uh, for people who look at the world, uh, like we do. I mean, there's the general question of like libertarians. I mean, do they have a place in the anti-war? Like I, you know, I've, um, I joined the anti-war struggle when I got out of the military in, uh, 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there was libertarians coming to the de- anti-war demonstrations and libertarian groups or whatever mobilizing for them, you know, and that's great. That's cool. Um, in terms of like the giving political leadership and character to struggles that we build, though, you know, uh, unity is uh, like built on on principles and coalitions mm-hmm. are built on principles. Um, and though, how do you actually reach um, the broad sectors of working class and oppressed people that that you need to build a strong uh, anti-war movement. And of course, um, that involves uh, uh, addressing racism as kind of a, a first and foremost thing and the uh, understanding that these wars are are racist wars and have racist components to them um, and issues of economic inequality and that how that's the the wars are just a boon for the military industrial complex while working people suffer and things like that. And so those are kind of um, points of unity that coalitions, real vibrant working class coalitions are built around that like the anti-war right, uh, you know, can't be a part of. And it's like going back to this idea about like liberals and anti-imperialists like splitting, which was always the desire of the liberals to split. Like the mm-hmm. anti-imperialists and anti-war coalitions always tried to make concessions to the liberal wing, but it was the liberals that like, we don't want these these communists in any kind of leadership position here. Um, but I think that it's, if we're looking about like uniting with people like Rand Paul and Tucker Carlson to build an anti-war movement, I mean, uh, how are you going to get people to join that who are immigrants, who are African-American, uh, who are of the uh, LGBT. Like it's, there's so many uh, important groups uh, of people in this country represented by strong and powerful organizations that you want to build uh, coalitions with that, you know, uh, rightfully so could not accept that and should not uh, accept that. So it's always like, a, I mean, there's always this hypothetical of like, how do we, can we build a, a left-right anti-war coalition like and that's like i'm not i'm not concerned with that i'm concerned with reaching the people that aren't reached by either right now yeah um like there's yeah like the anti-war right this like whatever niche but like i feel like a bit of that is like a a bit of a misnomer too right in the sense that like you know there's people who like i mean i was talking to some friends about this the other day i meet people you know because i'm in texas i'm in the south so like a lot of people that they're not i don't know like they don't want to be left because of the the aesthetics of it, right? But you know, there's a lot of people who like generally like they're anti-war, they're against these things. It's like they might say that they like like a 
a Ron Paul character. And literally it's because he's anti-war. So I always say that like, well, we should be doing instead of being like me being like, well, you know, Ron Paul, oh, I love Ron Paul. He's my boy. You know, so it's like, well, you know, here's like a really strong growing movement of like people like us who are doing anti-war. I don't know. Um, who take your concerns like, seriously. Because like, at the end of the day, when we're talking about any any kind of hypothetical like left-right alliance, I would say, um, what you're really talking about is the people. You know, like, like I don't need Rand Paul to show up at my meeting. Frankly, I wouldn't want him to, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. unless, yeah, <laughs> unless he's with his neighbor. But, um, yeah. you know, um, like I, I'm much more worried about maybe some of the normal people um, who I've seen in, in my community might be, get into somebody like a, a Rand Paul because, oh, he's anti-war and just bring him to our side that is like much more committed to an anti-war, internationalist, anti-racist position. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, and this is like a thing, you know, like there's there's always been this like right wing isolationism um, mm-hmm. as like a foreign policy where they uh, they think that it's that it's all about, um, you know, America. It's like the America first stuff, which Trump just used a, a, in his rhetoric, but, you know, still bombed like every place yeah. that he could to the you know ten, 10 times what his predecessor did. Um, and and right wing isolation is all about like we. Um, you know, we don't want our good American boys going over there and dying to like help these ungrateful people. Then we should, you know, like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, but we want to uh, promote internationalism, not just we shouldn't send our, our boys to go die. Um, but, but the idea that we have a lot in common with the people that we're told are our enemies, we have a lot in common with people in China, in Russia, and everywhere else, in, in Iran, in Cuba, in Venezuela, all the places we're told are enemies. We have far more in common with them than like extremely, extremely rich people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and people like that. Like those are people that we actually have nothing in common with at all. And I think that's something that resonates much more with this idea that why would we go help people in Iraq uh, and waste our, our, our American blood helping people in Iraq and playing into that lie when we can, you know, help people here. I, I think it... Um, I think it is impactful and, and meaningful to people to feel that um, that they're part of a, a class that is global uh, and they have kind of common enemies, uh, the people who aren't part of our class. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Mike, when uh, people go to follow you uh, at Mike Preisner, right, uh, they will see your name is Shut Down Red Hill. And I want to get your take on this uh, very quickly, uh, because I think this is an amazing example of what American empire delivers to everyday people, the myth versus the reality. So this is uh, nearby Pearl Harbor. Uh, and we have some news here. I want to get your reaction to Senator Brian Schatz announced a hundred million in federal funds to defuel the red Hill bulk fuel storage facility on the Island of Oahu. Um, I want your opinion on this, but before I do that, I, I want to also put up this uh, article from 1978. Uh, it is, uh, and uh, let's see one second. Um, uh, here it is. So this is uh, from 1978. Dillingham gets fuel tanks job. Dillingham Corporation has been awarded $19.9 million contract to renovate the Navy fuel storage fil- uh, facility at Red Hill. And this is just a 1978 article saying what we know now, uh, which is that these uh, deteriorated condition of the storage tanks threaten to pollute Red Hill's underground water res- reservoir, which provides, you know, all this. So uh, what's the uh, what's your reaction to the um, the funds and uh, and give us the Red Hill story uh, um, uh, uh, that, uh, that people should know? Yeah. And the, the journalist you just shared, Christine, she's been doing incredible work on the Red Hill crisis. Everyone should follow her. People like Oahu Water Protectors, 
uh, Sierra Club of Hawaii, like are really putting out important information on this. It's something everyone should care about. Um, I think to really understand what's happening at Red Hill, you got to go back to the origins of Hawaii being a, a part of uh, the United States. Um, uh, Hawaii was a sovereign kingdom. Um, you know, it had kind of uh, played the diplomacy game and uh, been recognized as a sovereign kingdom by um, by British powers and, and so forth. And so it was a it was a sovereign government. It was a it was a progressive monarchy. It was a, I think when people hear queen that they had a queen. They think like, you know, the Queen of England, but that's not really the case. Um, And, you know, Hawaii was, uh, of course, an incredible place. And Pearl Harbor, um, uh, which is not always called that, but um, that was known as the breadbasket of Oahu, the island of Oahu. It was nothing but fisheries and and places where people got it was like all of the food of the island came from this place it was super advanced and developed in in the ways of working in harmony with the ecosystem to extract massive amounts of food um for the people on the island um and also live at peace and harmony with the environment where it was so sustainable and this was it's hard to overstate how important um uh, pearl harbor was to the island of Oahu and to Hawaiians. Um, the United States saw Pearl Harbor and said, this is a really good place to park aircraft carriers and to park naval destroyers. So uh, in 1895, they sent the Navy to um, Hawaii uh, and they carried out their first uh, major, their, really their first regime change operation, where they took guns, they surrounded the presidential palace and they said, uh, the U.S. is in charge now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, what they immediately did is they immediately went into Pearl Harbor and just dredged it all out. They just destroyed it. They destroyed all the fisheries. They destroyed all the wildlife. Um, and they just, com- you can't, you can't eat a, a single piece of seafood, uh, from Pearl Harbor. Now it, there's signs all around it saying it's poison. Do not even go in the water. It's, um, and so that is how the U S military started in Hawaii and on Oahu specifically, and then every day since, that's the way they've operated. About um, 25% of the island of Oahu is occupied by the U.S. military. Some of this in the form of just, like, there's one entire island off Oahu that is, the entire island is just a bombing range for the United States. And this is an, an important place uh, for Hawaiians. Um, Hawaii was never legally annexed. I mean, even as the U.S. came and overthrew it, uh, the queen was playing the, the game of diplomacy. And instead of a call to arms of the people to rise up and go to war against the U S military. They actually made legal appeals and those legal appeals were deemed legitimate. And so it's, it's illegally occupied. It was illegally annexed and, and Hawaii should be returned, restored to the, the Hawaiian people. The U S military should leave. But uh, so much of the Island is taken over by the U S military and just dumped on. I mean, it's just treated with just such just disregard for the environment, for human life. Um, and so red Hill is just part of that, long history of just the military just destroying it for the purposes of having uh and this was the first step for the u.s becoming a big global empire stepping out off the continent once they had conquered all of the continental united states through wars of aggression against native peoples then they started stepping out and stepping out to pearl harbor was very important for the empire and then from there they're able to project their power all throughout the pacific all throughout oceana uh, and and that was uh, the reason for doing it. And so Red Hill was uh, the f- fuel storage tanks to complete this mission, to get fuel to all the ships in Pearl Harbor, to send them elsewhere in the world, uh, to kill people, to expand the U.S. empire. Um, now, these fuel tanks, it's just a quick rundown. It's like, you know, 
uh, many, many millions, like 25 million gallons, or uh, maybe it's more 200 million gallons of fuel, uh, always stored in these tanks. The tanks are literally underground, right above the main uh, aquifer in Hawaii, which means that when fuel spills from the tanks, it gets seeped into the aquifer and then just goes everywhere in the island. They've known this could potentially cause irreversible damage. I mean, it could cause the permanent loss of this aquifer. And we have an aquifer that's like over 20% of fresh water on the island of Oahu. If that's destroyed, I mean, life will never be again, be the same on Oahu. I mean, you, you won't be able to take showers with high pressure. You'll have to do water conservation all the time. It is just such an important, precious resource that Hawaii is lucky to have, to have this such a huge resource of fresh water um, completely wants to, uh, completely destroying it. So there is a leak um, a few months ago, and it just shows how much the U.S. doesn't care about human life, is the leak actually poisoned their own sailors, their own service members. The leak got into the water on their bases, and the Navy lied about it. They covered it up. They said, keep drinking the water, keep showering, keep using it, the water to make formula for your babies, and then just emergency rooms got flooded with people with horrible health effects. Uh, a lot of pets died, uh, which was a really sad consequence of it is everyone just started putting their dogs down because they the vets were saying, we don't know why your dogs are so sick. Um, and wow. so it was a, a really horrible thing. And the Navy just lied about it, covered it up. So then at the, to get to what your point about how Schultz, uh, Congressman, secured $100 million in funds to defuel the tanks, uh, what's happening is like a really incredible example of uh how the military really is above government in this country Mm. how the pentagon is above our democratic institutions the government of hawaii the governor the department of health the board of water supply has said to the navy issued an order order from the state of hawaii you have to get the fuel out of the tanks you have to do it um Mm. they said you have 30 days to come up with a plan to get all the fuel out of the tanks because there's still the water's still poisoned right now Schools still don't have water. It's, it's still leaking. It's like a huge disaster. But as long as those tanks are there, they, we are on the precipice of a major disaster, or at least until they re- defuel the tanks and repair them. But they should just be taken out altogether. So the, the, the Hawaii said you have 30 days to come up with just a plan. You don't even have to take 30 days to defuel them. In 30 days, come back with a plan to defuel the tanks. So a couple days ago, that deadline passed. And instead of producing a plan, the Navy produced uh, basically a legal suit saying we're challenging this in court and we're, we're naturally not going to do this. Wow. Um, and so Schultz, uh, you know, it, he was quiet on this for way too long. I mean, he was mm. quiet until he didn't have to be quiet anymore or when he couldn't be quiet anymore. Um, yeah, $100 million secured for the defueling, but it doesn't matter because the Navy's not doing it. Um, Schultz also notably secured uh, like $103 million for some new military radar to be put on Oahu. He secured over $300 million for some new military aircraft facilities on Oahu. So, you know, he's no stranger to securing massive amounts of federal funds for the military. Um, you know, maybe why he gets a lot of money from defense contractors like Lockheed Martin and so forth. Um, but really, the, the, the situation on Red, with Red Hill now is the fuel's still there. It's still, we don't know how much has leaked. We don't know where it is. There's still wells shut down. It's still a major water crisis on the island. So there's just that dealing with what's happened in the past, that this leak happened. It's not cleaned up. Um, but then this massive struggle on the island to say, as long as this fuel is are stored in these tanks, it imperils uh, the entire island and the future of clean drinking water forever on the island. And so it's um, just, a, uh, just a really, and, and then so you have like the Hawaiian government 
trying to tell the military what to do. The military is not listening to them. But then, of course, you have native Hawaiians who are fighting their government for stronger mm-hmm. things. And so it's uh, and uh, fighting for sovereignty, fighting for their own land. And and really, the my experience going there um I mean, it's just such a militarized place. I mean, you fly into Oahu and there is fighter jets on the tarmac where my airplane landed, the civilian airplane. It's like, uh, it's, it's wild. I mean, the the whole Island is taken over by the military. And then you have native Hawaiians who don't have access to any land at all. Um, it's their country. They, they have nothing there. And, and yet the military is able to just train on it, shoot bombs into wherever they want. Uh, and so forth. And so it's it's really tragic, but it's something that um, I think is becoming a big scandal for the Navy and for the Department of Defense. And so it's something that if everyone uh, does what they can to connect with the people that are organizing in Hawaii, uh, putting pressure on Biden, putting pressure on the Navy, um, this could turn into a bigger scandal. Um, I, I think it's it was a big scandal when the leak first happened because you had all of these soldiers and military families who are covered in rashes and in the ER and their babies all all sick in the hospital it was a compelling thing. But this is um, the potential for this to grow into a crisis that really is like the uh, the forefront of addressing the U.S. military's destruction of the environment. You know, Red Hill really could become that flashpoint. Mm. And so I think it's something that really everyone everyone should do their best to learn about and care about. Yeah, we'll link to your uh, report, uh, Native Hawaiians Fight U.S. Navy for Polluting Islands Water uh, from uh, December. Uh, and yeah, there's Instagram, Oahu Water Protectors. Uh, there's some links in the notes there so people can uh, get there. But uh, Mike, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, yeah, yep, truly. And, uh, you know, people, yeah, we have uh, we have links also to how you can follow Mike and also his work at Empire Files is absolutely indispensable. Um, truly, it's an honor to speak to you tonight. So thank you so much for being gen- Anytime, generous. and I love time. what you guys do too. Thanks, Mike. See you guys soon. Bye-bye. That was great. That was... Uh, yeah, that was, was I mean, that was, that was a lot of fun. It was nutritious, as we were saying in the beginning. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, the people, yeah, people like, I, I mean, I didn't want to, you know, praise him too much to embarrass him when he was on camera, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, his, his work in general is amazing. I, mean, I remember before doing any of this, watching some of his anti-war speeches. Um, it was really great to talk to him. And, and most recently, I mean, this, uh, I think the, the attention that they've brought to this issue has been really, really a, a major role and why more and more people are talking about. It. So this is why I'm, you know, continuing to share uh, their work and, and, and awareness of what's happening in, in Hawaii, I think is very, very um, crucial and can hopefully, lead to a you know a better settlement and it's so wild to me because like i think of the way like my grandpa who didn't serve in any uh co- combat but uh, was in the military as a young guy uh, you know at, this is after world war ii but like the way like like he traveled to pearl harbor right mm-hmm. and th- it has this like iconic sort of it's like a pilgrimage for guys who love the military in the navy and yeah. we're fucking poisoning it to the point the island isn't going to be inhabited unless we do something <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, and, you know, and, and the, the cruel thing about it is like, I don't have anything other than to, you know, larger point other than just say it's just so cruel what the U.S. military and the U.S. government does um, to Native peoples in this country, particularly with like finding really special spiritual and holy sites and just find them and, and, and using them. I mean, uh, you know, Hawaii, unfortunately, is not alone in that, but it's uh, absolutely. And, and people should, if you aren't familiar I um, mean, maybe we should do a longer s- segment on this in the future. Like people should look into the annexation 
um, of Hawaii because it is one of the most clear-cut scandals ever. All of the theft of native land obviously um, is, is stained in the um, you know with blood and genocide. But effectively, what happens there is you had some like preachers and missionaries getting together and saying like, we have announced our independence um, as a society, right? And it was supposed to be like, we're now like a revolutionary democratic society. Again, like these were just like white settlers, probably around like 25 of them um, on an island filled with people saying, oh, we're independent. We need the United States government to come in here and, uh, you know, save the day. I mean, just unbelievably um, clear as day um, land theft right in front of your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is. I mean, you know, you look at fucking Mount Rushmore in the Black Hills or you look at like the um, the place of, uh, you know, people say that South Africa first concentration camps. You look at the ones that the Dakota were kept at uh, on one of their holy sites at the uh, where the Mississippi splits from the Minnesota River, um, which now you fly over and you land airplanes on. Um, and it reminded me of uh, th- this whole conversation uh, with Mike reminded me of this quote that Ben includes in his Hitchens book from Adolf Reed, uh, the Adolf Reed article, The Whole Country is the Reichstag. Once in an argument in a Washington, D.C. bar with Christopher Hitchens during the Afghan war, I asserted that no place in the world had been made better by the president presence of the, of the 82nd uh, Airborne Division, not even Fayetteville, North Carolina, its home base. Uh, that's not Hitchens in his tracks. And like, I mean, you see what if, what, if they're willing to do that to fucking Pearl Harbor. Um, what are they do? What are they doing to the base by your community? It's Fayetteville, Matt. Fayetteville. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Coastal elitist over here. Matt's a Dakota elitist. He's like, if it's not yeah. a Midwestern place, I, yeah, we don't have a Fayetteville in North Dakota. <laughs> um, Fayetteville. Well, before we get Which to one the is Andrew, it? I mean, do, sorry, what? Which one is it? I, I've, I've, well, it's Fayetteville. Fayetteville. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, Sorry, no, lots of love to our friends in North Carolina, uh, but not as much to our friends in South Carolina. Um, when <laughs> uh, Before we get to this, did we want to do a little this uh, Bitcoin scam thing, or did we want to do that for the post game? What do you think? Let's save that to the post game. All right, we're going to bring that to the post game, folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to refill my glass for this one. Um, these these ramps are almost as bad as as the initial crime of stealing from folks um, and, and the <laughs> yeah. money laundering. Uh, we're going to be go- taking a little bit of a deep dive into that. Um, I put the link up for people on YouTube, um, or at least um, I, I made a comment in the chat that has our phone number. So be sure to leave us a voicemail for the patrons only post game. We'll be back in just a couple minutes, but before um, that, we have this interview with Andrew Hairston, which I'm really which I'm really excited to share with y'all. Yeah, I also just want to tease real quick. Uh, we yeah. got another, you know, in the in the luxury, folks of Left Reckoning's past have uh, will have been familiar with the Upscale Luxury Instagram account. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit, we'll I be, forgot about that. We'll be introducing folks to the Daily Trader Instagram account, mm-hmm. a different type of luxury lifestyle. Uh, does your PJ have Fiji is the question that all the people are asking. <laughs> and Matt will answer what his favorite bottled water brand is as well. I really don't like it. And also, work. before, you know, while we're pitching, we got a really fun thing coming up this Sunday, too. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Aaron from Trillbillies uh, at Paradoomer on uh, Drip God Twitter. himself. Yeah. We'll be talking about his great subsect piece about nostalgia that was prompted by uh, uh, the watching the Bulls documentary, <laughs> um, which really, like, I got to say, like, that – 
it was like this everyone went a little bit crazier in the pandemic right and like mm -hmm. you know we had the tight but like that sort of trip down memory lane of like of nostalgia basically we're going to interrogate nostalgia because we are going to talk about uh you know we we go back in history and left reckoning right and part of this is to kind of um undo uh um basically attacks at our historical memory and like fa mm -hmm. false nostalgia right um but we're going to talk about um some of the pitfalls in the um sort of mass marketed nostalgia that we get mass market nostalgia fair and also he uh, he watched uh, station 11 uh, which i don't know if you saw that david but i've seen uh, a decent amount i haven't finished it yet but I'm a fan of that show. That's uh, I like, you know, I think it's cause it really appeals to me as an English nerd um, that like Shakespeare would become a yeah. uh, sort of a, a rallying point for civilization. Um, and uh, around the, around Lake Michigan, I think that's a really sweet idea. But anyway, uh, we're, no, we're I'm, gonna... I'm looking forward to this conference as somebody who from a different angle too, like, likes like the past and, and retro and vintage things, you know, like, I, you know, all my pearl snaps and things like that are all seventies, eighties, nineties, um, kind of vintage where I'm really looking forward to sort of talking about what that means in our historical mem memory with, uh, Aaron. Um, so to yeah. get that, to get the post game where we will be listening to your voicemails and doing all these fun things, uh, join us up at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. So um, just to introduce this, Andrew Harrison, um, he is running for Justice of the Peace, I believe, Lord in heaven, uh, forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, in District 1, um, mm -hmm. in the kind of East Austin area. If I'm wrong about that, I apologize, Andrew. Um, but I really enjoyed having this conversation. I will say, you know, um, just noting from TMBS and, and Majority Report, Michael would always say that he doesn't like to talk to candidates because candidate interviews are usually pretty dry and boring. Um, that's not the case at all with Andrew um, he has a very inspiring um, message and kind of idea of how he wants to see his campaign and this movement, um, you know, sort of build not only power here in Austin, but our kind of working class democratic socialist movement across the country. Uh, so I hope you all enjoy it. And uh, Matt and I will see you on the other side. Welcome back, everybody, to Left Reckoning. David Griscom here. I'm really excited to be joined uh, this afternoon by Andrew Harrison, who is a civil rights lawyer who's running here in Austin for Justice of the Peace in uh, District 1. Uh, thanks so much for hanging out with us today, Andrew. Good afternoon, everyone. It's such an honor to join you, David. Well, I'm really excited to talk a little bit um, about this campaign. You know, we talked with um, Bob Libel last week um, about his run for Travis County Commission. Um, and, and one of the big themes we're getting here is how important it is for democratic socialists and, and for the left to really take these local races seriously, because you can do a lot of good um, for people with it. But before we get into the position and, and, you know, the politics around that, could you just introduce people to you? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and like what really gets you motivated in politics, social justice and civil rights? Totally. Yeah. I'm a black Southerner and civil rights lawyer, first and foremost. And I've developed this deep zeal for social and racial justice over 30 years, my age, and my professional career. I really went to law school thinking that I would be perhaps a public defender. And then after my second year really commenced, Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson. So I shifted my focus a bit in my career to more impact litigation and policy work in achieving racial justice. And so in the first few years out of law school in D.C., I really honed in on that passion and then moved to Austin in 2019 to further develop it by working mm -hmm. at Texas Appleseed. 
And I think my understanding of racial justice advocacy in the 21st century of being a black lawyer at this time in history really pushed me in this moment, really in the middle of 2021, to consider running for office as a democratic socialist and has culminated in quite the campaign leading up to the March 1st primary. I mean, it's uh, it's it's certainly been a really exciting campaign to see the the response so far. Um, but could you explain to folks who might not be familiar with the position justice of the peace what it sort of is, and yeah. why is it important for us as you know leftists and democratic socialists to care about? Totally. So, justice of the peace is a low level judge, if you will. It might be the one court that you would most likely be mm. entering if you're a litigant, and it covers in Texas, in Travis County in particular, things ranging from small claims and misdemeanors all the way to eviction proceedings. Mm. And you make a very salient point about the reception of the campaign. We've been blown away just door knocking and chatting with folks in East Travis County to say that twofold, we're going to address the school prison pipeline by taking on the truancy referrals that land a lot of kids in JP court right, just further criminalizing Mm -hmm. their behavior and maybe their absenteeism. Uh, And then to look at the eviction proceedings, where even when the CDC eviction moratorium was in place, the incumbent did not fully and zealously honor the tenants of that program and was inclined to evict tenants fairly early on in the pandemic. So, yeah, just to the piece, a pretty low-key role, but significant amount of power. Mm-hmm. And it affects a lot, like that's a lot of people's like experience with dealing with the state and the justice system in general. Right. And, on, you know, on your end too, I mean, the, the evictions have been a big part of this campaign along with other really important issues. And I, I, I think that's really important because, you know, as we're fighting in other ways to like increase rental protections um, for people, uh, the current state of play for most folks um, in Austin uh, compared to other parts of the country when it comes to tenant protections. It's it's not as great as uh, we'd like it to be. Totally. Now, what was very interesting for me a couple of weeks ago, the Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, Nathan Hay, who's a Republican. Mm-hmm. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, the New York Times op-ed. So interesting to say that even from our perspective in the judiciary, evictions have grown untenable over the past few decades. And certainly the pandemic has shown a light on just how quickly judges and judicial officers are willing to displace people and take away this vested property right that is their home and plunge them into chaos unnecessarily. You know, reading that op-ed along with evicted poverty and profit in the American city by Matthew Mm -hmm. Desmond is just really shining a light on, it does not have to be this way. 65, 70 years ago, It might have been in the community that Matthew Desmond analyzes and evicted. It's Milwaukee. It's like there were one or two evictions per week, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the stage that he's writing the book, maybe in 2008, 2009, it's several per day in specific neighborhoods. So, yeah, I think, you know, we got to understand now that this is a, a critical point for folks two years into the pandemic, kind of with a broad recognition that, Folks do not have to be displaced from their homes, and it doesn't have to be done so callously. 
Yeah, and it's it is not helpful. I mean, uh, you you note on your website, and it's something that I really liked um, about how you see the position. You said, "I see the justice um, of the peace as an empathetic protector of our neighborhoods and our family when they're in need." I want to keep our children in schools and keep our families in their homes. I mean, you've touched on that a little bit, but could you sort of expand on that? And, you know, particularly, I mean, like this is changing the way, in my opinion, um, the way that we can see our, our government and, and, and authority, right? Like if we're putting people in our community who are looking out for working class people, for people of color in these kind of positions, we don't have this kind of, you know, hard state apparatus that is sadly the experience for most people. Mm, love this point. Ours is a broad, really revolutionary view of public safety. And admittedly, there was a tension for me because as a socialist, I think I was drawn to run for the position. But I'm also a prison industrial complex abolitionist Mm -hmm. and working to see the end of policing and prisons in my lifetime, or at least contribute in that black liberatory tradition to the end of these oppressive brutal systems, right? And the abolitionist part of me was thinking, well, is it worth it to run for elected Mm. office, right? I'll be kind of sitting with the position and sitting with its roles and responsibilities and kind of understanding it more. It's like we really can have an affirmative vision of public safety where children are allowed to go to schools where not only they're just existing, but they are thriving, they're flourishing, where their intellectual curiosity is allowed to grow you know, as much as they want it to and check out various disciplines that they're interested in. And to think about their families, where increasingly because of the brutality of capitalism, a lot of us have had to rely on collective economics and maybe live with multiple generations in our family. To think that if I'm a child, I could have access to my great-grandmother, right? And this person could be with me and be an integral part of my rearing. And when she passes on, you know, we know that we have her memories and her home, right? To Mm -hmm. continue our family legacy and to understand that, you know, many generations into the future will be telling her story. Our descendants will be telling our story, right? And we can kind of rely on that safety and assurance. I mean, I, I I really hear you, and you know, as somebody who's from Austin and you know grew up here, and I've I've seen just the you know people talk about the changes in the sense of like, oh well, you know, the restaurants have changed. It's like the people have changed, um, and and seeing so many people, um, you know, really losing their homes, particularly um, in in East Austin, but even in South Austin where I'm from, um, you know, I talk we talk about the housing crisis a lot on this program left reckoning but you know could you sort of tell us your perspective on like what the housing situation is Austin um, in Austin is currently like and in particular like the current state of working class uh renters so we saw the New York Times was a, a big focus of this interview right chief justice hex op-ed and then in November 2021 the paper published a article to reflect on how expensive Austin is, uh, potentially Mm -hmm. one of the most expensive cities in the United States at this juncture of history. And you got to understand, you know, me, I've fallen in love with Austin over a two and a half year period, right? I definitely Mm -hmm. did. It's a lure. You have found a deep sense of community, wonderful folks, both in my neighborhood and larger community, who I'm just so honored to be with in this city. But to know that as a working class, but salaried person, right? 
and mm-hmm. the single person as I am, you know, there is a kind of precarity to it, right? You know, I'm doing all right right now, but, you know, kind of seeing these rising rents, seeing the allure of Austin being made known to many folks who are moving day by day, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if there are not affirmative programs to go to that earlier answer, to really stabilize rents, to make sure that folks have access to homes in a way that's not prohibitive and eating up half or more of their paycheck, then we're going to see, unfortunately, mass displacement. And already early in 2022, it's been business as usual in precinct one of JP court, right? It's like we're in 2019 pre pandemic, right? Saw reports on Twitter and through other anecdotal forms of evidence that folks are getting put out in the street, in their cars, right? In one of the worst phases of the pandemic with the Omicron surge. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that contextualizes where we are in Austin, right? It's a city of great potential, of wonderful history, but we recognize that if it doesn't have affirmative programs set in place, and that's why I'm so grateful to Bob mm-hmm. for running, right, and, and looking at commissioner's court as a way of engagement, then a lot of folks can stand to unnecessarily suffer. Yeah, and you know, this is something I said uh, to to Bob um, too. It's like you know, when we're talking about displacement and these changes, it's actually not to sit here and be like, you know, Austin's closed and we don't want people to come here. I mean, you're a great example of of wonderful folks who have come here. I mean, like that's why I love. Um, being from the city so much is that it's been like a safe haven and like a refuge for people from all over the state and, and also from all over the country. And like, I want that history to continue. What worries me is that you're seeing rents increasing and then the things that are coming in afterwards aren't for, you know, the people of those neighborhoods are particularly just people who work for a wage for a living. Um, you know, so I, I, I do see these things like from what Bob is doing is sort of dealing with like the income stream of the, of the county and dealing with how we're dealing with big corporations that are moving here mm-hmm. and, you know, working to curb um, these kind of unfair um, e- evictions and, and bolster our, our, our powers like the other side and make sure that we can protect, you know, the things that we have from, you know, speculation. But when you're taught, you're, you know, you're going out in the community, which is, um, you know, always like a really enriching experience. Uh, you know, people get nervous. People love that. <laughs> Sorry. I canvassed last night. I usually canvass four days a week mm-hmm. and go and knock on doors for folks. And, and folks are willing to give me a shot because they're like, oh, you're the man on the door hanger. You're the politician. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, y'all, I'm that committed to it. <laughs> That's beautiful. Rain, snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's it's definitely coming down now. Um, well, I mean, you know, people usually have like, I, I understand it because it's a little bit, you know, anxiety inducing to go and talk to somebody you don't know, knock on their door. Um, but I will tell people that the vast majority of the experiences that you'll have with people are are positive. And I'd just be curious to hear, um, you know, just what people have been sort of saying to you, um, you know, when you talk to them about what issues matter to them and, and how they're feeling about the campaign in general. Yeah. I leave with the school to prison pipeline issue and people are absolutely taken mm-hmm. up. By it. They want to hear it, you know, whether they are non-parents, whether they are grandparents, whether they're younger voters, right? Folks mm-hmm. are really drawn into that message. And I think they understand how the criminalization of young people, especially black and brown children, LGBTQ young people and kids with disabilities has just continually grown over the past several decades 
and no meaningful supports have been put into place to give mm-hmm. these an opportunity to thrive in their schools. And so folks have really loved hearing about the plans to put a significant cog in the wheel of the school prison pipeline by trying to end truancy referrals. There's currently an intergovernmental agreement between four JPs in Travis County and Austin Independent School District, where it's mm-hmm. on the books that children who are referred to the truancy system will go to JP court. But, you know, everything in my power will lead me to push those children right back into the classrooms and say supports need to be offered to them, especially at this phase of the pandemic. And then the housing piece is very resonant with folks as well. We mm-hmm. talk about housing as a human rights framework, right? As a judicial candidate, I'm trying to be mindful of not anticipating specific yeah. in particular cases. But to say that housing is a human right, and we have recognition from our top judicial officer in the paper of record that evictions are out of control and have mm-hmm. been for a long time before the pandemic. And there is a way to connect everyone with resources, right? We can think of mom and pop landlords. We can think of mm-hmm. renters in the city, right? So many tenants where everybody can maintain their home, can be made whole, right? For those landlords who are looking for kind of cash flow. Uh, and everybody can thrive. It doesn't have to be a, a either or situation. I, I like that. And, um, you know, just going back a little bit to the, the school to prison pipeline aspect, it's like, you know, these things are, and there's some controversy. I know some people don't like, you know, a, a court officials being elected, but um, I will just say this, like, you know, these things are done in our name as like a democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't want, uh, I would argue, the vast majority of people don't want to see, you know, young kids um, having this horrible mark on their record being sent, um, you know, into these uh, unfortunate situations for, again, like, you know, very, very minor infractions um, that are extremely punitive. And um, again, like bringing that uh, to the people in this way, I think is, is, is very helpful saying like, do you want this done in the name of your community? <laughs> do you want this done to your neighbors? Do you want this done to your neighbor's children? Um, and yeah, I think that's a very powerful uh, message that's been, that seems to be resonating with folks. Yeah. Well, um, in the last couple minutes, um, I wanted to talk to you, um, you know, specifically about um, how you're planning on on using uh, this office, right? Particularly as a member of of the DSA and of this movement, um, you know, how are you planning on on using this office as a way, you know, to help build a community, but also start building a working class power because. That's a community that has been really left out of the decision making process, um, not just in like, um, you know, like city government and, and, and state government, but very directly um, in our judicial system. Yeah, I am so proud to be a card carrying member of Austin DSA and DSA at large. And through the organization, I've gotten an even stronger sense of community. I know I reflected on that in the previous answer, but the opportunity to hone in on organizing skills. I'm a little reticent to call myself an organizer. I think from my time in DC, the organizers I work with are rightfully so are like, y'all are the lawyers, we're the organizers. But honestly, before I start my campaign, and I think that's so real. I'm like, I'm the lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I organize for no way on Prop 8. You know, mm-hmm. I was out for a few mm-hmm. weeks before the November 2nd election, knocking on doors talking to folks saying, 
this unfunded mandate, the superfunding of the police would be disastrous for Austin. Mm. You know, it's the furthest thing that we need. And that 69-31 margin, right, a victory for us with No Way on Prop A just resonated with folks, right? And then it was a pretty smooth transition into my campaign from there. I think being a member of DSA, I want to be very cognizant of accountability and Mm -hmm. want to really always uplift working class people. You know, when I was a child, I think my parents were just very supportive, loving folks. I had no idea that money was a finite resource. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think they call it spoiled. I was pretty spoiled. (laughs) But when I understood that, oh, I have to look at my money in my bank account if I Spend it all, there's no replacement, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I have you know, kind of carried that into my life and my advocacy in adulthood, right? And I always want to be thinking of particularly black and brown working class people across the South, right? My people who have done so much, who have gotten the education and worked hard for all these decades and still at a moment's notice, right? One paycheck away, all of us, from total mm-hmm. wrong. And so that analysis will be critical for me in my rulings from the bench of JP Court to understand that working class power is fueling this revolution where we're seeing more and more democratic socialists by the year winning these tremendous elections to see council seats, to judicial benches, right, to state legislatures. And we want to continue that momentum and continually uplift those experiences and those voices of working class people as we bring the revolution home. I love it. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think this is a a really exciting time and I I did just want to ask, um, you know, as you're seeing this campaign go forward, I think that, you know, for people who are in Austin, the the influence of of save Austin now has, has been really interesting. And, um, particularly uh, what we've seen since the the victory um, last fall, yeah. and now going into these primary campaigns, that like there was a moment that it looked like that that might be an ascendant movement. But um, I think a lot of a lot of really hard organizing work has sort of uh, weakened weakened their uh, position tremendously so far. Truly, truly, I reflected on this for in these times, the February mm-hmm. twenty twenty two edition, and I think that. You know, this is kind of the call of the socialist revolution in 2022 is to get liberal folks who are inclined to go toward, you know, Bernie and AOC mm-hmm. to see that housing has to be critical in how you analyze these structural issues, right? Mm-hmm. You know, to see Prop B be a defeat for us, right, in DSA and other progressive organizations. It's like, okay, well, we understand that a lot of wealthy white folks just don't want to see people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. But there's this opportunity here with the victory of Prop A that we don't want to superfund the police either, right? Yeah. And so there's this space in between. I think your point is well taken that it's a testament to organizing across years, right? And speaks to the power of organizing and the persistence of it. But yeah, I think that Save Austin Now is in a thankfully precarious position, right? Each election they picked up a candidate or a ballot measure is a more embarrassing defeat. Yeah. Election cycle. And yeah, I think we just have to keep up that narrative, like not just enough to keep the police funding the same, right? 
not just enough, right, mm-hmm. to say that you are engaged in philanthropic efforts through your church or private organizations to help people experiencing homelessness. Like, no, the socialist revolution has to really confer the means of production to the working class and make sure that nobody is experiencing this type of displacement. Because truly, across our hundred years of existence, of our humanity, Mm -hmm. the individual person, it just does not have to be this way. This earth has given us enough abundant resources to live very meaningful, fulfilling lives for the time we're here, and then we can pass it on. I, I I so agree with it. And I'll tell you, it was interesting to hear, um, you know, the, the, the shift that some people, cause I was doing phone calls, um, um, you know, last, last fall. And I talked to multiple people who voted for the reinstating of the camping ban, um, mm-hmm. and even had donated money to save Austin now who were completely, um, you know, they didn't regret their vote, but they, they, uh, they completely had done a 180 on that organization, um, and, you know, I think the challenge for us is, um, you know, out organizing our opponents, but also being able to um, make people feel like we can get things done when we say we want housing for all, that we are the group of people that can provide that as a solution. Right. It's not just an idea that we have, like we're out there mobilizing and and these kind of victories all build up our, our capacity um, you know, to be able to do that in the future. Well, well, um, it's an honor to be a part of it. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm super stoked. I'm looking forward to it um, to to seeing the results. So it's um, the early voting starting soon, correct? Yeah, eleven days. <laughs> early voting eleven days. On Valentine's Day. Uh, it will go through the 25th of February, and then March 1st is our day, election day. So I'll put links below for everybody, um, but you can find the website at hairstonforpeace.com. Um, Andrew's a little shy about this, but he's a huge Cowboys fan. So he scheduled an event on Super Bowl Sunday to protest the Cowboys not making it there. But there's going to be a fundraiser. There's nothing about sports. I am a Cowboys fan. <laughs> David says I am. Yes. <laughs> I'm just playing. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I believe it's in the afternoon. Um, there are uh, is more information on the website, but Sunday, February 13th, uh, 1233, um, there will be a fundraiser too um, in the kickoff. So people should definitely check that out if you're in Austin or the Austin area. Um, is there anything else I missed, Andrew? David, it's just a great honor. Thank you for this platform, for the work you're doing, and truly solidarity forever. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. That's a great interview. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's what I want in a justice of the peace. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. And it's, I mean, I no, I'm really what, excited. Uh, I can't tell people enough if you're in the area to check out the campaign and, and find ways to get involved or to donate. I mean, this is how we win. And I, I, I mean, I love, I love Andrew's perspective. And uh, I, I think that he's walking that good line of like, looking to build our movement and also looking out for people in the community at large. And uh, I, I, I'm, I was honored to be able to spend time talking with him about that. And I'm also recruiting for my Cowboys constantly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, we got a, we got a hell of a lot more for y'all on the other side. Uh, Patreon.com slash left reckoning. We'll be taking voicemails. We're going to be getting into the big crypto heist. I mean, this is the largest heist of all time, isn't it? I mean, uh, the OJ says it's the largest uh, seizure, uh, uh, financial seizure of all time. Um. 
you're gonna love matt and i will be doing you know the difficult dance between condemning and sort of being excited to see a kind of modern day heist breakout look the, the i mean yeah we'll get into it but like i don't I don't respect that money like I would like people's savings accounts. <laughs> like, yeah. I think it's funny. I think it's funny that these people stole it and gave just another example of like um, why this stuff, you know, um, gets is so interesting to people like scammers. <laughs> um, All I hear and, is somebody uh, who is saying horses are the future and the automobile will pass away as a fad or the internet's not legit. Uh, we have letters. That's me. Email. That's all I hear from you, Matt. But uh, <laughs> you probably <laughs> thought the more. wheel was a dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks everybody for hanging out with us. You'll be able to see us again in about fifteen minutes on the post game. Please sign up. Uh, Patreon.com slash Left Reckoning. This conversation with Aaron is going to be really, really good. Um, yes. On nostalgia, reflecting on the politics of nostalgia what this means um, for us in our kind of anti-capitalist movements. We're looking forward to sharing that with y'all and much, much more in the future. Um, Thanks everybody for supporting us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Mike, for coming out with us tonight. Um, And we'll see y'all soon.